to another episode of the Country House Podcast with Jeff Heath-Taylor, Connor Lynch, and me, Ben. Today, we're, we're discussing some, some topics that seem massive, but we've only got a short time for them, but evolution of, of the country house architecture or, or just evolution of general styles of architecture. And then later on, we'll get into some 20th century more specifics. But um, when we're talking about the history of architecture or the history of estates, um, country house architecture, where do we even begin? Because there is such a rich history. It's a good question, Ben. I think um, I think the the country house is intrinsically tied up, obviously, with its role in in communities and and in and in um, and in the land. So the role of the lord of the manor obviously has changed over the past thousand years. And Connor knows perhaps more about that than I do, in the sense of you know having brought up an Ireland, which is perhaps arguably a little more feudal still, in the sense that there are a lot of grand estates in an Ireland, whereas in England they've they've often been splintered up a bit. Um, and the role of the Lord of the Manor has obviously um, is is still really important today, and and I think especially in some of the Irish estates. But um, I think thinking about um, the role of the country house, I mean, we've got to think about it firstly, firstly in the sense of uh, and how it links to our, it, it. It's intrinsically linked to architecture because the architecture essentially um, is the external face of the role of the country house. So we know that, you know, in the, after the Norman conquest, country houses were often castles uh, and there were fortresses between warring um, factions within the UK. Um, whereas by the Georgian period, we had relative peace. The civil war was sort of long gone and uh, wars were being fought overseas, not internally. And so people could afford to have more innate, less um, sort of resilient houses. And that, that's why we saw the rise of uh, English Baroque and later um, sort of, Palladian and Regency sort of houses, which are much prettier rather than practical. Um, so we can sort of work through it. I don't know, Connor, what are your thoughts on on how we do this? I would say that um, a country estate and the house, just from its inception, is in a way uh, kingdom, little kingdoms within a kingdom. So they are um, uh, authoritative structures within a greater country. And if you look at them in that way, they have their own hierarchy, they, the roles within that, but also they are the, um, the bastions of tradition, um, local culture in that area. Um, and this is something that has passed on from generation to generation, that um, a country estate um, embodies what is of that place architecturally, whether it's the materials, and the family, but also um, local events and um, feast days that would be patronized by the family. So the big house is the hub of a circle where it's not just the family on their own in the big house. It is the village. It is the surrounding community. And think of it as a mini economy. And the country house is at its center. So a country house is nothing without its, without its people. And a landowner once told me that um, we were walking across the field and his, he was talking of his attachment to the land there, that his ancestors had been there for five or 600 years. And he felt that quite literally his blood was in this soil all around because um, the longevity, the continuity of his family being there. But it wasn't just him, it was the farmer, 
the gamekeeper. The farmer was fifth generation. The gamekeeper, I think, was sixth or seventh generation gamekeeper. And um, so it's not just the the head, the the landowner that is um, passing on from generation to generation and the sense of continuity. It's those in the village and on the estate. Um, and whether it's Tudor times, Georgian or whenever, um, to see a country estate as its own, um, I suppose, kingdom in that sense within a greater country, uh, that's something that is just throughout time. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, I think you know, in, in, in a podcast that's only 30 minutes long, it's going to be hard to sort of summarize how much that's evolved and how much has changed because this country's changed. Like you said, it's king, these country houses and their estates are, are kingdoms within kingdoms. I really like that that phrase, Connor. And, you know, our kingdom, our United Kingdom has, has changed so much over the past thousand years, as has the role of the estate and, and, and architecture. I think it's interesting. I think, um, I guess we, we might as well dive straight into the deep end and, and, and start with, you know, it's hard to say where, where to start. I think, I think 1066 is probably a good place to start because prior to that Saxon England we know people lived in you know uh long houses and stuff like that and it was it we didn't really you know it was only really after the Norman conquest that 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 Britain as we know it began to develop and that's why I guess prep school curriculums always start at the 1066 and finish with the present day so um I'm just looking through uh sort of my notes and uh what's interesting to note with the with with country house architecture is how we define different periods. So we define different periods of country house architecture either by the period in which it was built or by a style. So for example, Georgian architecture or Palladian or arts and crafts architecture, it's either a period, the Georgian period, when we had the Georges as our monarchs, or by a style like Palladian or arts and crafts. And interestingly, sometimes there's overlap. So Georgian obviously is a much broader um, era in that you talk about Georgian music, you talk about Georgian architecture, you talk about Georgian art, you talk about Georgian fashion. Um, whereas, so Georgian architecture is just one subset of Georgian society. Uh, whereas, whereas if you talk by style, Palladian or arts and crafts, like I said, or whatever, then it's uh, then it's more um, explicitly referring to, to to domestic architecture or architecture. Full stop. Um, what's interesting is occasionally there's overlap. So Elizabethan or Jacobean, or Jacobean especially, you rarely refer to Jacobean fashion or Jacobean. Um, politics or anything jacobean has, although it's a period it's the reign of king james it's it's become synonymous with its architecture elizabethan to a lesser extent um so i guess the next thing is thinking about when the when the time periods sort of um you know when we when we shift from one to the other obviously there's blurred there's blurred lines you know you you still are getting tudor elements well into the elizabethan and jacobean era you know and then, and then they were still using mullioned windows after they invented the Georgian sashes, for example. There's, there's not clear defined periods. Um, you can't sort of break it up into clear, you know, delineated sections. Um, but I guess I don't know. I guess Connor, would you say if we would start with the Norman Conquest, we'd probably start with Rome, Romanesque architecture, I guess, which is sort of 1050 to 1200. Would you agree that sort of, or, or Ben? Sort of that was the you know that was the that was the sort of Norman architecture Romanesque architecture was sort of the the, the early sort of country houses that we can see today. I don't know if there are any I don't know if there are any examples of an, a Saxon country house, but there are, for example, 
examples. I think there's nothing that early, but there are examples, for example, um, Boothby Pagnell Manor or Headingham Castle in, um, in Northamptonshire um, and indeed the Tower of London, which are Romanesque, um, you know, Norman or, or medieval houses or, or, or castles. Do you think that's a good place to start? Yes, going back that far now, in terms of style names, I wouldn't be as familiar. But as starting at 1066, you see that country houses, I suppose they wouldn't have been called country houses at that time, but they started off defensive. And as the country became more peaceful, more settled, so did the houses and their style changed and evolved with the political landscape and uh, how violent it was and then how peaceful it became. Um, and that throughout, even today, the politics, the regulations, uh, what taxation is and isn't in place affects buildings and architecture. That's why um, with the, say, the window tax on the, blo the blocked up windows at the, the turn of the 19th century, uh, there's telltale signs, windows being set back, the introduction of parapets to prevent fire, and this became a regulation. So through time by looking at a house once you become more familiar with country houses you can you can quite accurately place a time period on a house based on just combining all these telltale signs together so when when you look at thinking of um romanesque i i was able to i lived quite near boothby pagnell back in the day and uh i'd say boothby pagnell manor house is probably the most explicit example of a romanesque country house that we still have intact and i've, I've just been finding an image of it i'm a <laughs> ducal images but you you see it there and and i suppose when we're talking about the practicalities of romanesque country houses is it just because it's so early is it just made of stone you know is there yeah, anything... so essentially, essentially the definition of romanesque architecture and it's quite hard to pin down is is it's basically anything post-roman that's built of stone that is pre-gothic so the gothic period came right. slightly after but anything post-roman pre-gothic that's built of stone is romanesque that there's rarely there's rarely earlier examples than sort of between 1050 and 1200 um but that that essentially is the broad definition of of what romanesque is um, there were there were some Saxon buildings that were built in stone, you know, sometimes towers, sometimes churches, but um, but we tend to think of Norman ones because most of those Saxon ones, if if not almost all of them, have um, have have well have, are no longer exi existent. Um, uh, so yeah, um, a lot of our castles date from the Romanesque period, and a lot of our cathedrals do. Houses. I think Boothby Pagnell is probably the best example. Um, there aren't many others out there, um, but it just goes to show how resilient it just goes to show how, sorry, how resilient stone is that we can have these castles and these houses that have lasted for a thousand years because it's such a sustainable material. Yes, what are you going to say, Ben? Well, just uh, it's fascinating looking at it, and what strikes me is that it is simple. And you know, when we were talking about what topic to discuss today. It was the evolution of country house architecture. And I, I thought evolution was an interesting word because I didn't see it as much of an evolution and more as the sort of women fancy of the fashion of the time. But when you look at that and then you look at 
you know, moving forward to Baroque and Palladian, it does really seem like an evolution. It is an evolution, yeah. And uh, and I mean, what's interesting with with I think I think I don't know who it was who described um, who described Romanesque as severe classical simplicity, but it did. It, it's funny. It was long before sort of classicism reached our architectural sort of shores, uh, which came about you know after the sort of Jacobean Elizabethan periods, um, but yet. Um, it is like you said it's cla- it's got a classical simplicity to it that is is wonderfully timeless um and uh it's just a shame not more of these buildings exist still. what are you can what, what are your thoughts connor yeah i was going to say for our listeners an easy way to remember romanesque versus gothic is romanesque is a rounded arch whereas gothic comes to a point so the cathedral the church in your village if it has a round if it has rounded arches that is romanesque and pointed arches gothic that's helpful and 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 it's probably worth saying at that point that the gothic period overlaps significantly with the with the um with the romanesque periods uh so romanesque is seen generally as from 1250 uh from 1050 to 1200 but the gothic period started in in 1090 and ended around 1550 so after the tudor period started so there's a lot of overlap between these different periods so so and you see that in our buildings in our cathedrals especially where you often have a mixture of i'm trying to think of some examples i can see it but i can't remember what which cathedral it is but you know we have a mixture of norman arches or romanesque arches and pointed gothic arches that were often built around the same time because of the periods overlapping um in fact i think it's i think it's sherban abbey which has norman arches and then the second tier of arches they built above it are gothic and they were all you know it's the extraordinary evolution which we see in our cathedrals like in our country houses of um sort of the overlap between different periods that's really interesting yeah i I was instantly reminded of durham cathedral then when i eagerly brought up my ipad again um which is an amazing example of those um norman arches uh so what what's next then after after we move from this uh Norman Gothic period. What do we start to see in in country well, houses? Well, the, well, that that's the interesting thing. So there's so so the Gothic period was a much longer period. It was from roughly 1090 to 1550. So it's probably one of the longest. We dwell a little longer on Gothic because it it was one of our longest sort of periods of 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 architecture in this country. So it was certainly post uh, Norman conquest. Um, so as as Connor said already, it's defined by its sort of large spaces, decorative detail. It's um, pointed arches, um, sort of often uh, incredible vaulting, uh, a lot of patterns, a lot of ornamentation, uh, you know, square patterns, zigzags, you know, battlements that were done sort of, you know, buttresses, flying buttresses, all these extraordinary things, you know, and, and, uh, and, and you know, we, we moved later into into perpendicular Gothic, which had, you know, um slightly different elements to it you know uh, rather than square chunky buttresses you you ended up with um with 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 flying buttresses and so forth um and um i guess some good examples of early domestic gothic architecture are things like cote manor and somerset which is in the perpendicular gothic style or um or little wenham hall in suffolk which was built around 1270 um, which is which is a, a, an example of perhaps earlier Gothic domestic architecture. Uh, worth probably getting those up on the screen 
at some point uh, or you know um but uh, it's those are examples of of yeah and, and there are and there are quite a lot of houses then which overlapped with gothic and tudor so tudor came later uh tudor period you know obviously started in the late 15th century through to the end of the 16th century uh or well actually that was elizabethan but you know mid mid 16th century but um but uh yeah so the houses like sutton place in surrey which is an extraordinary house near guildford uh which has gothic elements to what is largely a tudor house so unlike unlike a lot of tudor houses which you commonly associate with tudor houses which are sort of the wattle and daub and the timber beams sutton place was built of brick and stone with timber of course but um but you know there were gothic elements to a lot of the the rooms and and the great hall in, in sutton place which which just brings out again what I've said already about the overlap between different periods. So Sutton Place was finished in around 1525 and the Gothic period sort of extended through to 1550 roughly. Um, I mean, that's obviously a huge overlap with Tudor and, and Tudor itself then merges into Elizabethan and Renaissance architecture. Um, just, yeah. In just talking about these Gothic houses and the Romanesque preceding them, that um, of course at this time the Great Hall with the the open fireplace, the um, the, hide, the animal hides on the floors, the timber tables. This was still the, the, the hub. The Great Hall was the hub of the house. At what point did the country house move away from the Great Hall and spread out to um, not so much drawing rooms, which came later, but rooms around the Great Hall? Because at this point, the Great Hall, and like the Romanesque house we saw prior, where they had animals beneath the Great Hall, and you could see steps rising up on the outside into the the large space. Um, yeah. There was a transition in the Elizabethan time, of course, it changed, but in a way, it still is there when you think of High Clear Castle. Still has the the center of the house is a Great Hall with the fireplace. Well, it's interesting you say that, Connor. I've been thinking a lot about a house I visited exactly this time two years ago, which which is one of those wonderful country houses, which we should definitely do a podcast on its own, which is sort of, it's a great Elizabethan prodigy house, but it was built around a hall house, a, 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 um, a 14th century, early 14th century hall house. Um, and, and it charts the progress of, um, of uh, not just the country house, but of British architecture and the, and the role of the country house. So that's Pencess Place in Kent which has been the home of the Sydney family for over 500 years. Um, and Penshurst, yeah, it's, it was originally built as a hall house uh, in 1341. Um, and the Great Hall is still, a, and then was, remained enormous part. And you can see, I mean, even now, if you go to Penshurst Place, there's sort of a mock fire built in the middle of the room with sort of candles inside it to make it look like, obviously they didn't light it because they didn't want to have the house full of smoke anymore. But there is that role of the Great Hall. I guess it was in the days when, I guess England. It was. I guess. I guess. Why would? Why would? Why didn't they have houses with more rooms? Um, in in sort of the the the, the Romanesque and, and Gothic and early Tudor periods. I don't really know. Except I can only think that there wasn't as much money around to heat all those rooms. I don't know. Had they invented fireplaces, or did they just have um, a hearth in the middle of the room? I'm not entirely sure. What do you think, Ben? Well, think. Yeah. Oh, no. I will. I'm just thinking of uh, Great Fulford in near Exeter, where the Great Hall still survives at the core of the house, and the later house was built around that. Um, 
and there are some houses where the, the hall that that main hall still exists and the the later house was built around it um with great fulford that still has the great hall at the heart of the house mm. and in later periods the house um, was built around that built around a courtyard but um as to why it was just one big room double height up to the rafters with a, a large open fireplace um it does tie back to i suppose it's easier to fortify it's not it doesn't spread over a wide area um it's usually raised above the ground um so i think it had to do with fortification and thinking back to castles before that so prior to 1066 you had a great hall in the keep in the castle in the tower house and i would imagine that it was a continuation of that tradition hmm yeah i think that's fair um it's it's lovely to see examples in houses of where they where they kept it i think i'm just looking at um at some notes and and it says that um unaltered hall houses are virtually unknown because they've all like fulford and pencil's place have been extended and modified over the centuries um but uh yeah i think that's right i mean the hall house as as you know which was so um you know common in in sort of um pre-tudor england was very much um yeah you like you said it was it was the center of not it was the center i guess of feudal life because the lord of the manor would 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 hold court like like a king would hold court um in his palace or in his castle so the lord of the manor the feudal lord of the manor would hold court in his in his great hall so it was where all the entertaining took place it was where all the you know um the eating and the cook i mean the cooking would often take place next door in a little kitchen or whatever but the, you know everything would happen around the fire in the, in the great hall and Maybe you can talk a little bit more about the role of sort of the the, the Connor about the um the sort of our move away from the feudal system towards um sort of what we what I guess what we have now, but um you know how what, how do we move away from the feudal system and and how does that affect the role of the country house? But before you do that, Connor, can I? I've just found something about the by the late 16th century, the Great Hall was beginning to lose its purpose. Increasing centralization of power in royal hands meant that men of good social standing were less inclined to enter the service of a lord to obtain his protection, and so the size of the inner noble household shrank. As the social gap between master and servant grew, the family retreated, usually to the first floor, to private rooms. In fact, servants were not usually allowed to use the same staircases as nobles to access the great hall of larger castles in earlier times and servant staircases are still extant in places such as Muckles Castle. Other reception and living rooms in country houses became more numerous, specialised and important, and by the late 17th century, the halls of many new houses were simply vestibules, passed through to get to somewhere else, but not lived in. So the, that that's an interesting point to sort of close off that great hall bit, but on to you, Colin. Yeah. Yes, the feudal system um, where the Lord not only had obligations to the king, the kingdom, but um, obligations to those who were under him in the locality. And I suppose that ethos and that which people will be familiar with the term noblesse oblige, the obligation to those less fortunate and in a way like a, like a shepherd and his flock and... Um, 
it does continue to an extent, but it changes as everything does over time. Um, I would say that the transition from generation to generation of an estate is through primogeniture, which is the eldest son inheriting. Now, that may be seen to people as completely unfair, but um, that is the means by which an estate can remain viable and whole and within the family from generation to generation. That was done away with in the con on the continent and estates through the passage of time became smaller and less viable and were parceled out to different members of the family. Um, and talking to landowners today, if it's now primogeniture is just to the eldest son, um, if they if there's just daughters, maybe it goes to one of the daughters, perhaps, but it might also go to the eldest closest nephew, say. Um, and from knowing um, this situation in families, that because it's known at birth and at the outset, there's no um, sense of unfairness because it's it's not arising out of the blue. And um, a landowner that I was talking to about this said that it's not for him to change, that he will give as he received. And for him to, he's benefited from primogeniture from father to son, and for him to change it now that it's come into his hands, um, which again ties back into the landowner being a custodian and um, looking after the estate and the uh, the house for his time on the on for his family's time on the estate, so it's passed on to future generations in as good or better condition, which is what you would want not only of um, the local lord but the kingdom of, as a whole, that the king passes on or whoever's in charge passes on in as good as condition that they received it. Mm. So as 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 the feudal system disintegrated and and it links, I guess, a lot with the role of the whole house, which we, which Ben's just read as 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 power became more centralized. So um, so we saw the disintegration of the feudal system and also therefore the, the changing role of the country house from being the focus of 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 communities and the focus of of power locally power became centralized so 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 the house became more of a, a just a place for grand families to live i guess is that is that fair yeah less relevant in that governmental way and uh, less of a yeah less of a local authority now it's still kept that to an extent but it was no longer the point at which the law was um enacted in that area it, it, it was more um in a way figurehead um still very much carried on in many parts of the country today but as we well know the death knell to the country house was the first world war mm. wiped out then by the second world war and the punitive taxation of the 20th century but i think that's a that's an entire episode as to the decline of the country house in the 20th century um something that is quite remarkable that 400 or 500 years in the making of an institution to collapse in one generation through two wars and 
punitive taxation. I guess we could, you know, I think in the light of, um, you know, there are so many proverbs about how quickly it takes to build something and how, how so how long it takes to build something, how quickly it takes to, to tear it down. And, you know, arguably we're seeing that on a, on, a, on a macro scale in the sense of, you know, Western civilization today is tearing itself apart very quickly when it's taken thousands of years to build. Um, yes. And, and like you said, the country house embodies that perfectly. I think just on our whistle stop tour, before we go to, you know, off off um, off tangent or on a tangent off topic, um, probably worth rush, uh, moving on to the next period. So the overlap between Tudor and Elizabethan was sort of that 50 years from, well, the 50 years of the Elizabethan period, they were also building a lot of sort of Tudor style houses and brick and and um, and timber and, and, and wattle and daub. But uh, Elizabethan period essentially was, which is also known as the Renaissance period in England because it's when the Renaissance reached England, is essentially Queen Elizabeth I's reign, so 1558 to 1603. Um, and that's when, yeah, when we began to see more European architecture or architectural styles come in and mix with our own architectural styles. So um, inspired by Renaissance detail, you saw, um, you saw uh, symmetries or strap work, um, the building of these great prodigy houses, essentially the first stately homes of England were built during the Elizabethan or English Renaissance period. I'm thinking of the likes of Burley House um, in uh, Cambridgeshire, sort of near Stamford. Uh, Longleat, of course, and Wiltshire is a famous example. And, and latterly, Hardwick Hall in Derbyshire, uh, Bess of Hardwick's house, um, are great examples of of prodigy houses that, are, that, that were the first sort of really great houses of England. We went from having manors to stately homes, essentially, during the Elizabethan period, um, they were they had things like long galleries. They had a lot of glass. Glass was cheaper by then and much easier to make. So Hardwick Hall, I think the 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 joke was Hardwick Hall more glass than wall because it had so many windows, which made it extraordinary. You know that's what they used to say about Bess of Hardwick, who was the richest woman in England at the time. Um, when she built um, Hardwick Hall, it was it was it was an extraordinary feat of engineering because. It was it was stone and glass essentially, not dissimilar to what you might say. You know, some of our sort of modernist or, or contemporary buildings today, which are stone and glass. You know, it was it was it was a pioneering house. Um, but you had these you had these the great halls were still a part of the house, but more as a dining room or as a or as a socialising hall rather than the hub of power. And 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 more and more rooms came around it. So you started seeing houses in the Elizabethan era, which were E plan or H plan layouts instead of courtyard design. So rather than a square with a courtyard in the middle, you started seeing houses built with wings and 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 um and cloisters and uh um and and, and then of course they they started adding I guess what we call now a, a porch, you know, um protruding entrances, um which which in those days were were known as frontispieces, uh which would sometimes cover run the full height of the building. So I guess good examples of that on a smaller scale. So there's the great prodigy houses, Burley, Longleat and Hardwick, amongst others, um, Hatfield's another example in in um, in Cambridgeshire, or is it actually Hatfield's Hertfordshire, isn't it? Um, but other examples that are slightly smaller but still substantial Elizabethan country houses are houses like um, Ch Chavenage or Chavenage in Gloucestershire, it's about 1576, uh, Breemore House, 1583, and Fountains Hall, which was actually 1604, so just after the death of Queen Elizabeth, but um, very much in the Elizabethan style, are uh, great examples of domestic architecture. And, I guess um, as as sort of the medium sized country house, um, so 
And then, of course, the Renaissance period. And sorry, I, this, you know, I, having, you know, covered all sorts of different houses for country life, I sort of have, unlike Connor, who's a, he's a classicist, I sort of have a slight, less deep knowledge of classical architecture. And Connor can get on to that in a minute because we're about to reach Palladian and Regency and Georgian architecture. But, um, you know, the overlap in Renaissance architecture between between Elizabethan and Jacobean. So, you know, James, King James became king in 1603 on the death of Elizabeth I, and it's sort of Stuart, early Stuart architecture um, was, was sort of, is where we began to see um, bigger panes of glass. So we saw, you know, it began to, it was sort of, it was right at the end of sort of where you had leaded windows and little small diamond or square glass panes you know, set in lead. It was just a sort of some Jacobean houses. I'm thinking, for example, West Horsley Place, which had a Jacobean facade whacked on the front um, of a medieval house, you know, was an early example of Georgian sashes. We, we associate them with Georgian, but actually, you know, you also had in the Jacobean period. So the Jacobean period ran from roughly from 1600 through to um, through to 1625, but the Stuart period would have, and the Restoration period sort of overlapped with that so you could say the likes of Inigo Jones and his contemporaries um who were sort of great Jacobean architects you know were also restoration period architects so so we began to see the geometry the geometry coming into um to these houses so whereas the Jacobean style uh often there were Dutch gables and that came a lot from the influence from the continent with the fleeing of Huguenots from um persecuted Huguenots from Europe uh so you see that especially in Norfolk and Suffolk, where a lot of the Huguenots settled, a lot of great houses like um, Raynham Hall in Norfolk, for example, which has extraordinary Dutch gables, as examples of of European architecture seeping in, which we never really had pre Elizabethan period. Uh, it was, you know, the pre Elizabethan period, our architecture was quite um, was quite pure English architecture, albeit quite simple. Whereas as the European influence came in through the Elizabethan and later Jacobean and Restoration periods, you saw a lot more European influence. Um, and maybe Connor can talk to us a little bit more about Inigo Jones, who's who's been described as the first English architect, um, you know, paved the way for the likes of Christopher Wren and um, Roger Pratt and John Webb and others, uh, and, and countless 18th century architects. Um, uh, Connor, what, 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 what are your thoughts on Inigo Jones and, and, that, and that, that, that movement into Restoration architecture? And, and, you know, classical architecture came with that. Yes, just coming up to that period, um, I would say that just in light of what you said, relation to pure English architecture and then European influences, that looking at Tudor to Elizabethan and then moving on, you do see you see half timbered houses um, where you have the white infill and then you have the timber and it's the it's the house that everyone recognizes. And the only brick solid structure would be the, the chimneys and maybe the base. But then as you then move into the Elizabethan, uh, it's not just the chimney that is, is the solid structure, it's the majority of the house. But you might get uh, the wings or just the central element, which is half-timbered. And eventually the half-timbered is done away with entirely. And the half-timbered might be just used for the farmhouses on the estate whatever it might be but the house itself is entirely brick with stone dressings and then moving on from brick and stone dressings we have entirely off stone so there's that transition to stone with brick in between and um, 
course, moving on to the restoration, there was a great pause, a lull in country house building with um, the time of Oliver Cromwell and the, uh, of course, the execution by Cromwell of Charles I and estates were dormant or um, people uh, families had lost their estates. So there was a great boom in the 1660s with the restoration. And um, this is a style that I would love to see come back. It's the tall country house. It's that Dutch influence. Think of a townhouse. It's not a two-story house with three stories of tall windows. Um, when we think of Georgian country house, they, they might have two stories and then the top windows are square and it's clearly an attic story. But with Caroline houses, that period between 1660 and 1685, um, we see three tiers of tall windows, unashamedly a tall building with the cupola on top generally. And um, Ashdown House comes to mind, Belton, of course. Um, um, Belton, in fact, is just exceptional. The picture behind Ben is one that Connor designed. It's a mix of three Carolean houses, isn't it, Connor? That is exactly a mix. And one of them, um, it was lost, demolished in the 50s or 60s um, following a fire. But yes, uh, that is Carolean. And now that we are in the reign of Charles III, um, what we build today is Carolean architecture once again. Mm.